Welcome to UX Soup, our short-form podcast where we go beyond the buzzwords and talk about the latest user research, technology innovation, and all things impacting the experience of personal devices and services, whether it be at home or on the go. So today I'm joined by my, my colleagues, uh, Chris Schreiner. Hello. And Derek Vita. Hello. And I'm Lisa Cooper. And as always, UX Soup is sponsored by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients all over the world with insights, analysis, and expertise. So today, we're going to talk about the topic of autonomous vehicles. So let's start with Chris. I wonder if you could give us an overview for those that aren't as familiar with uh, autonomous vehicles. Could you give us an explanation of um, the levels of automation Yes. Yeah, so just in case we uh, end up saying a few buzzwords <laughs> accidentally or, or <laughs> some terms that uh, everyone might not be familiar with, there are six levels of automation when we're talking about self-driving cars. SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers, published these levels, and they go from level zero to level five. L0 uh, is what vehicles traditionally have been, where the driver is in control of every aspect of the driving task. L5 is basically where there is no human driver. The car does not need a steering wheel or an accelerator and brake pedals. Vehicles that are on the road today are either L1 or L2. In L1, the vehicle can control steering or acceleration and braking, but not both. In L2, the vehicle can handle both steering and acceleration and braking. For L3 uh, is similar to L2 with as far as anybody in the industry can understand it. The exception being that the driver doesn't have to pay attention during those times. The vehicle is fully in charge during those moments of automation. And L4 is the vehicle can basically take part of the trip fully automated. So for instance, highway driving where the driver would not have to pay attention at all but may have to pay attention on surface streets or other situations, but the vehicle would provide it with provide the driver with enough leeway to be able to handle that. So that's the hopefully quick one-minute primer on levels of automation for self-driving cars. Uh, we've done a lot of research here, and Derek has, has certainly been heading that up in looking at uh, the usefulness of self-driving vehicles, looking at the HMI, the interaction between the driver and the vehicle, how system status is communicated to the driver. And we've looked at, I believe, close to 20 different types of park assist and, and self-driving systems. And Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, so I think next we'll shake it up a little bit and play a little game. Derek is very experienced, has a lot of passion for this subject area. So we thought we'd give Derek some word association or um, stream of consciousness. Stream of consciousness. Oh boy. So I'm going to throw some words at him and see what his stream of consciousness comes up with uh, about each of those words. All right. On these issues. Yes. Uh, as ready as I'm going to be. Okay. okay, Derek. L2 plus. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, so we've done quite a bit of research on the sort of L2 and below, uh, again, on, on three continents uh, for a number of different clients and, uh, and park assist, drive assist, things like that. Anything ab 
above L2, you're going to still run into a lot of the same UI issues. So you still need to uh, understand where a control is, how to activate it, um, with the exception of the level five Johnny Cabs, obviously. But you still need to convey system status in some way, and you still need to convey, uh, especially for L4 and, and uh, L3, quote unquote, what a driver is in control and what a driver is not in control of. And broadly speaking, you still run into the same two issues that you run into with the level two and below. Well, the first one being, again, as Chris mentioned, HMI, and the second one being practicality. Uh, HMI, as we've seen, is a bit of a mess. Uh, it doesn't really take into account a lot of lessons we've seen from previous human factors research. It's very reliant on subtleties uh, when you need these this clear and obvious HM, uh, UI. And then just usefulness. What we've seen with a lot of these systems is they're just not incredibly useful. The safety benefits have been questionable at best. We've seen research from IIHS that sort of bears this out. And for anything where you still have the driver in the loop, it doesn't necessarily eliminate workload. It just rearranges it. So for example, most driving systems are going to require a driver to grasp the steering wheel as a way to prove that they're still paying attention. If you're asking a driver to check in uh, every 10 seconds, are you really offloading that much cognitive workload? Uh, you also need to be careful about predictable abuse when you're Given the op when given the opportunity, humans are still going to check out and not pay attention. We have great research already out from uh, Neville Stanton's lab at Southampton in the UK, showing that drivers really don't know how to attend to a partially automated system. So if you ask a driver to, for example, read a magazine and still attend to a partially automated system, uh, they found that drivers are going to need between 2 and 26 seconds to take over. So essentially, all you're doing is inviting predictable abuse. And so if you're a designer, an engineer, you really need to account for that. There's really no excuse. There's existing research out there that proves this. Wow. Our second word for you, Derek. Oof. It's actually two words. Oof. All right. I need to yeah. take a breath there for a second. <laughs> Passionate. All right. I'm ready. You ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Park assist. Ah, uh, park assist. So as I mentioned before, we've looked at get at least a dozen different uh, quote unquote varietals from several different automakers. They're all very impressive from a technolo technological perspective. The vast majority allow a car to steer itself into a parallel parking space. Some do it for perpendicular back ends. Some do it for parallel park out. Vast majority are steering only. So the driver must control forward and backward movement, control the pedals. Yeah, very impressive, undoubtedly. Perfect example, though, of that practicality piece of the experience that's often missing when we discuss AVs. So one anecdote really sticks with me whenever someone asks me about Park Assist. So we, we conducted an evaluation of one particular automaker's Park Assist with first-time users in a controlled setting. And for whatever reason, in one run-through, I think it was for a perpendicular backend, it was just taking four ever. If you've seen uh, Austin Powers, uh, there's that scene where he's uh, in the hallway with a little cart just going back and forth, back and forth <laughs> for several minutes. I it, love it that, was that scene. Essentially. <laughs> so we got through it. Study First thing the study participant says is, I could have been in the grocery store by now. Yeah. So again, this is it's this practicality, piece, very impressive technology, but you really need to think about how it's actually going to be used and how it's actually going to improve a user's life. Okay, how about autonomous shuttles? 
All right. So I'm assuming we're by autonomous shuttles. We're talking about those uh, level five uh, Johnny cabs we've seen from Total Recall, where the user is basically uh, you have a, a rider on board who does not need to worry about controlling uh, steering or back and forth. A lot of companies are using these low speed glorified golf carts to test their AV algorithms. So May Mobility, Easy Mile, Navia, a lot of big names in this space are doing this. And again, very impressive from a technological perspective. It's great. Uh, their idea here is that even for a low speed shuttle, it sort of helps with first last mile transport and get yeah, fantastic. Again, though, we run into those same issues with HMI and practicality. For all of these shuttles, even though they're quote unquote driverless, they still have a test operator on board uh, to make sure that everything is operating uh, as needed. And they're also required from a regulatory perspective in a lot of areas. Test operator HMI for these has really been an afterthought. It's it's sort of a, a you bring a laptop in to the shuttle and monitor all the blips and bloops and stuff. Uh, it, the test operator interface has not really been taken into account, at least in public-facing research that we've seen. The other, again, is, is practicality. If you have someone who can walk a mile faster than it takes this shuttle to complete <laughs> one mile, what is the value to the user? Right. And so the the next question is, well, what about limited mobility users who need last mile help? Again, that hasn't really been taken into account either. We so there was a great article in VentureBeat recently about May Mobility specifically, uh, which operates several of these golf carts around North America. They they basically needed cities to beat them over the head to comply with the Americans for Disabilities Act before they put in any wheelchair access restraint. Oh, things wow. like that. And they still to this day don't accommodate children who need booster safety seats, things like that. That's so crazy. again, practicality, like very impressive. Uh, certainly they're collecting a lot of autonomous miles mm -hmm. from a practicality perspective to a user. What are these things really adding right now? I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> All right. You may need to take a deep breath, do a little meditation for this next one. Ready? Cracking my knuckles here. Uh, I, I think I'm ready. Public beta testing. Ah, okay. So, uh, <laughs> like the, the common thread, they take a breath and, and, uh, focus here. The common thread through uh, everything we've talked about, the golf carts and some of the more advanced taxi concepts. So Yandex in Asia and Europe and Waymo, Uber, Lyft, Jam Cruise in North America. Uh, is the reliance on public beta testing. So the idea is you take your cars on public roads, collect mileage, collect experiences via the camera, via LIDAR, radar, things like that, and let your system learn. The problem with that is that for safety critical systems that can hurt and, and kill people, when you put them on public roads, suddenly we're all beta testers. So all road occupants, drivers, pedestrians, bicyclists, they're all beta testers. And so it's up to some other body, preferably a government, to uh, sort of police that and make sure that all roadway occupants are safe. Because companies clearly, uh, without getting into a whole lot of detail, companies have a very checkered history at making sure that safety culture is established and followed. Uh, unfortunately, the government has been fairly slow as they typically are to respond to any new tech, but especially for these public beta tests, uh, companies have been getting away with a lot so far. Wow. Um, 
Okay, next word. Okay. Tesla. Throwing a lot of very uh, big, uh, sticky topics at me. So uh, Tesla has influenced a lot in automotive. So we'll start with that. They've been a very important player in the automotive space for eight years now. Uh, They were the first to push a level two-ish advanced driving assistant uh, to the road uh, called Autopilot. Terrible name, but very impressive technology. Uh, And the fact that they pushed that to owners via an over-the-air update is remarkable. No need to go into the dealer to add this equipment or anything like that. It was pushed uh, as a software update over the air. It's incredible. Uh, They did the same with Smart Summon, where an owner can use their companion app standing a few hundred feet away and and summon, quote-unquote, their Tesla uh, driverless. It's, It's amazing. They can get away with this because their owners all tend to be these leading edge tech enthusiasts. And they call these systems, and furthermore, they push these systems to the road by calling it a beta, right? Mm, so yeah. basically, rather than rigorously testing their technology, they push updates to their fleet and use their owners as beta testers. But for a lot of these systems, all it can do is invite predictable abuse. Remember what I talked about with uh, the simulator study uh, with. Dr. Stanton at Southampton, if given the opportunity, drivers are going to check out. And in fact, recent research out of UC Davis said exactly that. Tesla owners who are already very accepting of new tech, not tend, don't tend to be very skeptical, are using autopilot inappropriately. They're sleeping while autopilot drives uh, mm-hmm. on freeway. Right. And oh, by the way, autopilot isn't even fully baked. It's a beta. So these there's still a whole bunch of autopilot errors that come up very often. So the most recent autopilot update uses the forward camera to identify objects and and pushes that to a screen and allows the car to drive through green lights, things like that. It it still makes a lot of errors. It will either miss stationary objects. That's how people are getting killed using autopilot. They'll run into a a fire truck or a police car. It's on the road. It just literally won't see it. Or it'll see an object and misclassify it. So for example, there's a very a viral video that made the rounds of a Burger King sign mis- being mistaken for a stop sign. Okay. So this is not a particularly sustainable, let alone a safe or user-friendly development process. So te- again, Tesla has been at the forefront here. There's a lot of what they're doing that's very troubling, especially for ABs. And we got one more word, the final word for you on this. Okay. All right. The word All right. that is... I, I think- it's a word that uh, is has been kind of researched to death. The most looked at UX word with regard to self-driving cars, and that is trust. Uh, yes. So uh, I, I love trust research. So obviously, trust is a, a very important piece for consumer acceptance. We found in our independent research for years now at Strategy Analytics. So for for skeptics of AVs, they just don't trust AVs yet. What changes that is exposure, um, and it's tough when companies hide the research that they conduct on on trust and usability and stuff. Fortunately, we have a lot of great research out now that has solidified this relationship between trust and exposure. Waymo has shared a few pieces of its research and has actually developed a few UI best practices. So, for example, boiling down a UI rather than, you know, blasting the user with like radar feedback and and so on. 
just boiling that down to a few pieces uh, of the surrounding environment. So a nearby car, a nearby pedestrian, just to indicate to a user that, hey, I see this, this is what it is. That's one great way of engendering trust. And that's great that Waymo was uh, sharing this. Uh, the PAVE campaign in North America, which is a, a special interest group uh, representing a lot of different AV stakeholders, most recently ran uh, some survey research that helped outline this relationship between trust and exposure. Important to note, though, that trust is just one piece here. There's a bunch of other end user research beyond trust that we still need to explore. So, for example, population specific needs. If you remove a human driver who can be there to help with if, if it's a taxi or a bus, so bags, entry, exit, things like that. What do limited mobility users need? What do parents of young children need? Uh, what if you have a guide dog? What do they need uh, in a driverless car? So these are all just a few examples of things that we need to look at. Policy as well. Again, how can we create an AV environment that is user-friendly for all and not just for the companies who are trying to collect mileage here? I've been sitting in with my state's AV work group, which is providing insight and asking questions and so on about forthcoming legislation around on-road testing and AV development and stuff. And even there, people just don't know what's out there. They haven't been exposed to enough to understand the right questions to ask. So one recent meeting, uh, they had a group of law students from the University of Washington do a deep dive on liability issues with AV. So if there's a crash, who's liable? When I asked about who would be liable if, for example, an app failure led to a crash, let's say that a Tesla owner is running Smart Summon and uh, the, the app crashes and the car keeps going and it hits something, who's liable? Is it the app developer? Is it the phone manufacturer? Is it the cell service provider? And crickets, right? Mm -hmm. People just aren't thinking about this enough. So trust, very important. Uh, I love to see more research out about trust, but it's, as Chris said, it's been over-researched and there's many other UX pieces we need to look at. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very deep subject. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Oh, um... <sighs> You can take <laughs> a break now. Gonna, you can breathe. Cup <laughs> Okay, time for condensed soup. Condensed our, soup. Our regular, um, our regular segment where we, each of us, share our best and worst uh, UX experiences. Um, so for this for this topic, um, we want to talk about our best and worst in vehicle experiences. So I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll go first. It's very clear to me that that people that uh, design vehicles are generally not women um, because most women carry little bags or as we call it in the States, purses uh, with little things in them and there's really nowhere to put those things. And I carry one of those. I have a very small, very light backpack that I carry. I often put that on the passenger seat next to me can you guess what happens when I do that? Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> My Subaru likes to tell me that there's someone in the passenger seat that isn't wearing their seatbelt and beeps mm -hmm. at me frantically. And it doesn't really seem to be very consistent either because sometimes it will beep and then stop after a while. Sometimes it will beep for the entire journey. <laughs> and sometimes like oh. today, it didn't beep at all. And I had even more stuff on my passenger seat. I actually had a much, I had my laptop on my passenger seat 
and I had my small bag and it didn't beep at all. That's my annoying, poor UX experience within with vehicles. So Chris, what would be yours? Uh, I think I'm going to go uh, negative today as well. So I use Android Auto quite a lot uh, for listening to music or, or podcasts as uh, I'm driving. And I've had several difficulties lately where the infotainment system just freezes or I lose connection somehow and I can't seem to get it back, plug the phone, take the cord out, plug it back in. It doesn't seem to connect, doesn't want to register. It always seems to happen anytime that I'm going to drive for more than 30 minutes. So on those trips where I really, really need it, it just kind of freezes up and I'm stuck with either trying to do something that I'm not supposed to do while driving and fiddling with my phone and trying to get a connection back and music. I know I'm not supposed to say that I do things like that, but, but yeah, that's, that's my frustrating element today. Derek, how about you? Ah, so I have a, a, I don't know if you would call it good or bad. It's a wistful memory of a good experience, uh, (laughs) transitioning to a, a bad experience. So we recently downsized to a one car household. I I got rid of my mid 2000s compact SUV. And now I drive my partner's mid 2010s compact SUV when I need to go somewhere. And it's got all of the trappings that the new a more modern car would have We get the the push button start and the the push buttons on the outside to unlock and it's it's great. I miss my buttons and knobs on the front console though. Mm. So my old car had buttons and knobs for volume and uh, heating and air con, things like that. The new car HVAC is all touch sensitive. Even volume control is one of those little flat touch sensitive bars. It looks very nice. It's very sleek, but I really miss my buttons and knobs. Okay, so that's all for now. Thank you for listening. And uh, you can check out our latest uh, user-focused insights on strategyanalytics.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter by visiting our show page at ux-soup at captivate.fm. And please remember to subscribe to UX Soup on your favorite platform. You can review our show. So from me and Derek and Chris, goodbye for now. <laughs>